right, good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Romans chapter 8, this is the fourth week, I believe, that we've been in this chapter, and Lord willing, we're going to finish it. We're going to finish it this week. So Romans chapter 8, 31 through 39, nothing can separate us. I think we've been in Romans now for 18 or 19 weeks, going verse by verse, and we've learned a lot as we've gotten into this this chapter that is the, um, the halfway point, but also one of the best chapters in all of the Bible because it starts off with that declaration of, of there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that once we were dilapidated, once we were unsanitary, and once we were in, inadequate, but God has changed that. He has moved in, and he has taken hold of us, and he has purchased us. Not only that, he has given us a spirit, and he has given us his spirit, so we no longer walk according to the flesh, but we walk according to the spirit, and he has placed the spirit within us that, that moves and groans and grieves with us as we walk through this life, and so he is working out these things, and as we get to verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, and so there's this one thought that we have this morning, God is for blank, God is for us. God is for us. Now, what a remarkable thought that is. It's not a universal us. It is a, a distinct us as the children of God, as we've, we've been working through that. But it is this idea that if all of these things are taking place, then God is for us in our salvation. As I sat in the stands this week and watched my daughter play soccer, it's kind of a bittersweet year. It's her senior year, and so we've been watching her play soccer since she was a little tiny kid all the way to now, and we just know that the, these are some of the final games. And, and as I was watching her get beat this week, I thought, never in one moment did I think, I'm not for her. I'm, I'm for her, even if I see her losing the game, right? I'm for her. And so as God looks down on us, I'm not sure if God is a sports fan or not. I mean, we, he might be. I don't know. Uh, Lane Kiffin once said, I don't know if God's a sports fan or not. I know this. He loves a good comeback. That's, uh, I, mean, I mean, that's pretty good, hey. So I don't know, but I do know that he is for his children. He is for his children. This us is spoken of those who have faith in Christ. It is those who have received Christ into their life and had their life covered with his blood. The promises apply to those who are his, not to a universal us. It, it reminds me of the Passover in Exodus, that the blood had to be applied to the doorpost so that the promised blessing of the Passover would take place. And so for those who have the blood applied to their life, there is the blessing that God is for us, which causes us to get to this verse where if God is for us, who can be against us? But if God is, what if God is not for you? As Charles Spurgeon once said, there is an opposite to this. It belongs to some who are here. If God is against you, who can be for you? If you are an enemy of God, your very blessings are curses to you. Your pleasures are only a prelude to your pains. Whether you have adversity or prosperity, so long as God is against you, you can never truly prosper. Take half an hour this afternoon and think about this. If God be against me, then what? What will become of me in time and eternity? How shall I die? How shall I face him in the day of judgment it is not an impossible if, but an if which amounts to a certainty, I fear, in the case of many who are sitting in this house today. If you're not covered by the blood of the Lamb, this us does not apply to you. And so I want to pray for us before we read 
these verses, that God would awaken our hearts to him, that he would draw us to him, and if there's someone who doesn't know him, that he would draw you to himself today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how it speaks to us and how today it declares a promise that is unfathomable. It is a rich grace that we cannot even understand. So, Father, we would ask that the spirit that you've given us to indwell us would give us understanding that would lead us and guide us into truth. And, Father, I pray for those that hear the words of this scripture today, that your words would penetrate to their heart and draw them to yourself. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and that all of our life is in him. In Christ's name, amen. Verse 31 through 39. You will need a Bible. There should be a black hardback ESV somewhere near you. We're going to bounce around quite a bit today. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? Those are good words. Today we're going to look at three questions that arise in these verses. The first one, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God's for us, then who can be against us? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Well, as Paul gets to this part, he's like, what shall we say to these things? What things is he talking about? Well, for us, we may be 18 or 19 weeks into this, going week by week by week, but this is one letter. And so when he says these things, it is all the things that he's been talking about in this letter that they would be reading in one sitting. And so we go back and we can look there in chapter 3, 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands God. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. As Paul is giving the, the gospel, he's saying, listen, there's not a one of us that is good. There's not a one of us that has this thing figured out. No one seeks God. We're all in this state. And then he gets to verse 21 of that chapter. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So though no one seeks God, though everyone is separated from him, no one does good, he is now inserting himself to be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. Chapter 5, 6 through 10. 
For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So if God is going to see us in our depraved state and he's going to insert himself as just and justifier, that at the right time, he died for us, though we were his enemies. These are all these things that he's been talking about. And then we got to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And now we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to, the, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the us. Those whom he foreknew, those he predestined, those he called, those he justified, those he glorified. This is the one that he's talking to in this place. And so he's saying, what shall we say of these things? We're saved by God. We're justified, we're sanctified, and being glorified. And it's through Jesus Christ, not by the works of the law. If, what should we say to these things? That we are reconciled to God. That we were brought back. We were once alienated and enemies of God, but now we've been reconciled to him. We are at peace with God. The wrath of God is no longer on us. It has been poured out on his son in our place. What shall we say to these things? That we are now filled with the Holy Spirit. We are not left alone, but he gives us his very own presence to aid us and help us as we walk through this life of sanctification, one day leading to glorification. And not only that, but we are adopted sons and daughters brought back into the family of God. What are we to say to these things? I'll tell you what this means. It means that God is more committed to your salvation, your sanctification, and your glorification than you ever will be. That's good news. He's so committed to you. Look at what should we say to all these things. He has been doing every single step of your salvation. You can't, you can't earn it. You don't deserve it. And you can't lose it. Salvation cannot be dependent upon our commitment to him. If it was, we would lose it. So God is for us means that God is not only committed to your salvation, but he's also completing your salvation. What a wonderful gift. That it is God's work when you were yet an enemy of him. He sent his son to die in your place so that you could have life and have it everlasting. And not only that, he's not going to leave you where you were. He's going to walk with you and lead you towards glorification. He, it, Paul says in Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Believer, follower of Christ, God is for you. And you are not left alone. Because of God's own great love, mercy, and grace that is unmerited by anything in us, he is committed to our salvation and he will complete our salvation for the glory of his name. God being for us has nothing to do with how amazing we are, but it has everything to do with how awesome he is. He doesn't look down and go, man, I don't know, they're pretty cool. I think I might save that one. No, no one seeks God. No one's right. No one's just. But God is a good and gracious king. So what proof do we have that he is for us? Verse 32, he did not spare his own son, 
but he gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, if God was willing to give up his son to save you, then there is nothing that he would, he would not do in order to keep you. If he's willing to go that far, then he's willing to do anything he needs to do in order to keep you. Genesis 22, 1 through 14. If you want to turn there with me, it's a familiar story of Abraham and Isaac. The word here in verse 32 is did not spare. It's the same word that shows up in the Septuagint in, in Genesis 22 for withhold. It's the story of Abraham and Isaac when he takes him to sacrifice him. Let me read these verses to you and just remind you of the story. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains in which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place in which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, I, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they both went with them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar, on the top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out in his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld, there's the word, your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as he said to this day. This story is the perfect picture, the Old Testament picture of the union of God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ, going to make the sacrifice. He goes and he makes the sacrifice, and there's so many similarities that take place. Isaac carries the wood for the sacrifice. Jesus carries his cross. They go to a place that is going to be a place that God will provide. That Mount Moriah is the same place that is now called uh, Golgotha. It's the same hill. He did not spare his son, but he gave up his very own son. And God provided a ram, a male lamb, to be the substitute, the sacrifice that is provided for all of those who would believe. Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. It was God's design to show us from the very beginning that he would sacrifice his son so that we could have life. Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This was God's plan. And so if God did not spare his own son, but gave up for us 
gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is more committed to our salvation than we will ever be committed to it ourselves. He's planned this out. He will graciously give, which is a great word in the Greek. It's not merely a gift, but it's a gift which is given out of a spontaneous generosity. It's on top of. It is just ongoing generosity that comes out from the Father. And so why will he not also do this in our place? You see, the ultimate price was paid, but now there is ongoing gifts of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness for all those who are his. God is for us. This last spring break, we decided as a family that it was time to go back to Disney. You know, it's the 50 years, so let's do this. Let's do it big, and let's go and go all out. Now that our kids are older, our kids are, you know, one's an adult, one's almost an adult. It's a different ball game when you go to Disney with adult kids, and it's a little bit more expensive. So when, when you go, like, we, we went, and I paid the price, right? It, it was, it's going to be a pinch to the pocket. You know, it's, I paid the price, but we get there, and there's no way that when we get there, I'm going to be like, no, you can't have that. No, you can't have that. No, you can't have that. In fact, I was like, you have a room key, and it's got my credit card tied to it, so if you need something, just go get in line and get it, because I don't want to stand in line any more than I have to now that you're an adult kid. You just go get it. And so my daughter caught on to this, and she said, hey, anybody need anything? It's on me. Anybody need anything? It's on me. And so she kept just going. It was just this, I know this is a horrible illustration, but it was this idea of not only has the price been paid, but there's an ongoing, lavished love and gift that is given on behalf of those who are his. God has saved you with such a tremendous purchase. He's not going to start withholding blessings of your salvation now. God purchased your forgiveness with the death of his son, and now he freely gives you continued forgiveness through the resurrection and life of his son. What a remarkable thought that he did not spare his own son, but gave him up, and now he's going to continue to lavish upon you, graciously give you unmerited love and forgiveness. John MacArthur said it this way, God's unlimited forgiveness makes it impossible for a believer to send himself out of God's grace. Again, God is more committed to your salvation than you will ever be committed to it yourself. This, what shall we say of these things? God is working on your behalf. Who can separate us from God? If God is for us, then who can condemn us? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? who indeed is interceding for us. Here we begin to see Paul shift back to that judicial language where he's talking about like a courtroom and the gavel has already come down. This has already been declared. You're just in his sight. So who can bring any charge against you? One day we will stand before the Lord. And if you are in Christ, then you will stand before the Lord, washed clean, not condemned. But if you have not if you've not come to faith in Christ Jesus, then you will one day stand and the wrath of God will still remain on you. Thomas Schreiner says this, believers can face the day of judgment with confidence for those whom God has chosen as his own will certainly not be accused on the day of judgment. God has declared them to be right in his sight and thus those who would accuse believers will not successfully establish their case. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God's elect, again, Paul is clearly showing that the us is for those who are in Christ. 
or God's chosen ones, God's chosen out ones. And I know that the word God's elect gets some people's hair on their, on their back to stand up because they start thinking predestination, or we're getting into predestination. And, and really all I can say is if predestination makes you angry, then you are predestined to be angry. And so it's okay. Just accept that. Kenneth Weiss said, This election does not imply the rejection of the rest, those not chosen out, but it is the outcome of the love of God lavished upon those chosen out. We are not to look at the negative side of this and get all worked up about it, but to look at the fact that God's love from the very beginning has been poured out on those whom he has loved, those he has predestined, those he has chose, those who are elected, those who are the called out ones. He is now lavishly giving you all things. He would not withhold his son. He's not going to withhold the things that work towards your salvation. D.L. Moody would say the elect, the elect are the whosoever wills and the non-elect are the whosoever wants. So maybe that will help you uh, work through that. The idea is that those who have been called by God, those who are standing in the courtroom, there is no accusation that can be brought against them because they are completely covered. But there is an accuser. There's an accuser that stands there, and Revelation 12.10 gives us the inside of that, inside view of this. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. There is an accuser who would like to bring a charge against you every time you fail, every time you, you slip up, every time you fall back into sin. There's an accuser who wants to say, see, look, see, look. But it falls on deaf ears because you are chosen. You are his own child. He's always for you in this sense, in instance. Accusations against God's elect come from Satan, it comes from sinners, and it comes from self. You see, if you are an accuser of a fallen brethren and not an aid to a fallen brethren, then you speak more as a child of Satan than as a child of God. And these are the words of Christ to the Pharisees. You sound like your father, the devil. Oftentimes, we are the ones that bring charges against God's chosen ones. We want to heap insult upon them because of the sins that have crept into their life, but that is not the voice of God. And sometimes our self heaps insult after insult after accusation after accusation upon ourselves because we harbor sin in our life that we know should not be there, and we feel guilty about it, and we begin to accuse ourselves and we begin to listen to the wrong voices. This is why James would say, therefore confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Listen, if you are harboring sin in your life and you're not confessing that, and if you're not finding accountability to share those sins with other people, then you will begin to feel like you are accused. Again, Charles Spurgeon, when the guilt of sin was taken away, the punishment of sin was removed. For the Christian, there is no stroke from God's angry hand. Nay, not so much as a single frown of punitive justice. The believer may be chastised by his father, but God, the judge, has nothing to say to the Christian except, I have absolved thee. Thou art acquitted. For the Christian, there is no penal death in this world, much less any second death. He is completely freed from all the punishment as well as the guilt of sin. And the power of sin is removed too. It may stand in our way and agitate us with perpetual warfare, but sin is a conquered foe to every soul in union with Jesus. 
There is no sin which a Christian cannot overcome if he will only rely upon his God to do it. They who wear the white robes in heaven overcame through the blood of the Lamb, and we may do the same. No lust is too mighty, no besetting sin too strongly entrenched. We can overcome through the power of Christ. Do you believe it, Christian, that thy sin is a condemned thing? It may kick and struggle, but it is doomed to die. God has written condemnation across its brow. Christ has crucified it, nailing it to his cross. Go now and mortify it, and the Lord help you to live to his praise. For sin, with all its guilt, shame, and fear, is gone. That is the declaration that is made in the eternal courtroom, that you are covered. There is no accusations that can be brought against you because it's gone. And so when you feel like you're being punished because of things that are going on in your life, God is not punishing you because of sin, because the punishment of sin has already been poured out on his son. There are sufferings in this world, but who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Hebrews would say the same thing in Hebrews 7, 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Not only is there no accusations that can be heard on your behalf because you are covered, but there is one that is up there defending you constantly. At the right hand, at the side of power of God, he is saying, nope, I intercede for that. Nope, I covered that. Nope, I died for that. Over and over and over, he's interceding for you. So what does intercession mean? It means that Jesus is the eternal high priest, that the only sacrifice that ever needed to be made to free you from sin has been made. It was the blood of his own self being poured out for you. It means that he is intervening for you. 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. It means that even when we do sin, there is one... There's one advocating for us, and he is the mediator. Jesus is our mediator, 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is going between us. He is always interceding for us. So God is for us. Who can separate us? Who can separate us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This section proves to us that we are saved, but we are not saved from the current sufferings of this world. This section also proves to us that suffering is not an evidence that we've been separated from the love of God. Sometimes we go through such difficult situations that we think, I don't even know where God is. I feel like maybe he's, he's not listening to me. I, I, don't, I don't know. You're not separated from God just because you're going through difficult situations. We live in a fallen world. As Tony Maria put it, in this fallen world, there will be pain and hardship, but we must not let the pain and hardship deceive us. If we are in Christ, we can be assured that God is for us. In our Christian experience, we may encounter spiritual warfare, but though all the powers of the evil one may come against us, they will never prevail since God is on our side. Put it this way, if you are in Christ, you will never be out of Christ. If you are in Christ, 
you will never be out of Christ because he is far more committed to your salvation than you will ever be committed to it. If you are in Christ, you will never be out of Christ. And Jesus himself said this in John 10, 28 through 29, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. If you are in Christ, you will never be out of Christ because if you could lose your salvation, then trust me, you would. If it was up to you, you have no chance. But you have one who has done all these things for you. And now you have a Holy Spirit that is interceding for you, as we said last week, who takes your groans and your prayers and filters them into the will of God. Not only that, you have Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. I, I died for that. I paid for that. I covered that over and over and over. I don't know how long the prodigal is a prodigal. I, I just don't know. But I do know that a faith that saves you is a faith that changes you. And a faith that doesn't change you may not be a faith that saves you. And I, I don't know how long someone will wander off the path. But I do know that if you are in Christ, you will never be out of Christ. And so I'm going to give you a biblical description of someone who is in Christ, according to 1 John. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to 1 John, and we're going to work through these verses real quick. And here's the description, and here's, here's what I would pray over you right now, that just through the reading of God's Word, that the Holy Spirit would convict you if this does not describe you. 1 John Chapter 1, 6 through 7. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Those who are in Christ walk in light and in fellowship. 1 John chapter 1, 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those who are in Christ still sin, but they confess sin. 1 John chapter 2, 3-5. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Those who are in Christ keep his commands and live obedient to the word and the will of God. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Those who are in Christ are not drawn to the world, but they're disgusted by the things of the world. First John 2.29 And if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Those who are in Christ practice righteousness and pursue holiness. First John 3, 5-6 you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, 
And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Those who are in Christ abide in Christ and thus produce a Christ-like character. They produce a life that walks in the spirit and not a life that walks according to the flesh. 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Those who are in Christ love other believers and have a deep love for the bride, the church. 1 John 3.18-19 By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Those who are in Christ have an assurance of their salvation because they can never be taken out of his hand. And though sin may enter, though persecution may enter, though trials may enter, though suffering may enter, there's an assurance through the Spirit that has been given to us that we are his. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Tribulation. This conveys the idea of being squeezed. Where everything just begins to kind of close in on you. Have you ever had those times in life where you just feel like, Everything is beginning to cave in on you and you just feel squeezed and you feel distressed and you feel the tribulation coming. It doesn't separate you from the love of God. The stress, the circumstances of life, this is the picture of finding yourself not only in that tight corner, but now you find yourself in a place where you feel like there is no escape. It doesn't separate you from the love of God. Persecution, religious harassment. In fact, John 15, 18 through 19, if the world hates you, Know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were in the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you were not in the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We can expect persecution, famine, physical weakness and neediness, nakedness, total poverty and disgrace, danger, credible threats of harm and sword, which is martyrdom and execution. None of these can separate us from the love of God. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. Not only can we overcome these things, but these things are used for the glory of God through our life. As John Piper say, a conqueror defeats his enemies, but one who is more than a conqueror subjugates his enemies. A conqueror nullifies the purpose of his enemy, but one who is more than a conqueror makes the enemy serve his own purposes. A conqueror strikes down his foe. One who is more than a conqueror makes his foe his slave. All of these things are being used to lead us in sanctification towards glorification. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing. What a remarkable thought. If you are in Christ... There is absolutely nothing that can separate you from him. Nothing. Nothing you've done. Nothing you've said. Nothing you will do. Nothing you will say. No sin is so great. Not even death 
Not even cosmic powers beyond our control can separate us from the love of God. Amen. That's a remarkable gift. J.I. Packer says this verse is the best news anyone has ever heard. It means that as Paul triumphantly declares nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, it means that God will never forget us or cease to care for us and that he remains our forbearing father even when we act the prodigal as alas, we all sometimes do. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. When we fail utterly, William Newell says this, when we, when we fail utterly, and are overwhelmed, then is the time to say we have been accepted in Christ only in Christ, holy in Christ. Our place is unchanged by our failure. We are ashamed before God, but not confounded. Just now, his eyes are on us in Christ as they ever have been. His love is as deep and wonderful as ever, being the love wherewith he loved Christ. That is how he sees you today. So this chapter began with, for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation and there will be no separation. What a beautiful gift of God. Church, he's more committed to you than you will ever be committed to him, but don't you want to be committed to him? Let's pray. Father, as we thank you for what you've done for your glory and for your name, we are just recipients of the grace and the mercy and the love and the forgiveness. And God, we are amazed by that, that nothing can separate us from you. We thank you for paying the ultimate price, but now also lavishly giving us forgiveness on top of forgiveness on top of forgiveness, interceding for us when we fail. Father, I pray that right now, if there's someone here, there's someone who hears these words that does not have the assurance of their salvation, that they would bow their knee, that they would confess their sin, and they would find faith in you, because that's the only way to be saved. Father, we thank you for your love. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.